Smartcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of the Burden of Command podcast. Uh, Today, I have a great guest for you, Mr. Chuck Swoboda. Uh, Chuck is innovator in residence at Marquette University, president of Cape Point Advisors, and retired chairman and CEO of Cree, Inc. He is co-inventor on more than 25 patents covering LEDs and lighting technology and has over 30 years of experience in the technology business. Uh, additionally, he is an author, speaker, and host of Innovators on Tap podcast. Uh, his new book, which will be out by the time this airs, uh, The Innovator's Spirit, Discover the Mindset to Pursue the Impossible. And, uh, you know, Chuck, thank you very much for being with us today. I really appreciate it. Well, I really appreciate you having me on the show. No. Uh, so I'm very interested with, with your background to, to hear the answer to the first question I ask all my guests. What does the burden of command mean to you? You know, it's interesting. So so for me, I had to think about that a little bit. And I really, in my mind, I need to distinguish between command and leadership because from my perspective and experience, they're different. To me, command is more directing someone to do something while leadership is convincing others to follow. And my guess is there's probably a burden that could come with either of them. But, you know, my experience running Cree was really around leadership because in our business, most people didn't take orders very well. And in fact, if you tried to tell them what to do, they were more likely to do the opposite. So, (laughs) um, you know, but either way, I I'm not sure that I ever considered leading my team or leading the company a burden. I I know I felt an incredible accountability to the the various stakeholders, whether those be the, you know, the shareholders or the board or the management team or the employees. And, you know, I was really very focused on trying to do the right thing each day. But I think for me, if if I was able to be convinced, I considered all the options and really did what I believed in my heart was the best thing then it, it kind of freed me from what I think that term, just the, the term burden. And so for me, it was more about the pressure was convince yourself you're really doing the right thing and then don't think too much about it. Mm. No, I like that. I like that. And, you know, yeah, I, I like that answer. There's no, you know, I, I always tell folks there's no right or wrong answer. I'm always, I'm always intrigued. As part of why I started the podcast is, uh, to, to really understand everybody's interpretation of it. So uh, I, I like that take. Thanks for sharing that. Uh, so let's go ahead and, and dive into the book a little bit here. 
innovator's spirit, discover the mindset to pursue the impossible. Now, one of the things I like that you do very early in the book is you make a, a, uh, a big distinction between the words innovation and invention. Uh, why did you feel that was so important and what are the differences and why did you feel that was so important of a distinction to make? Yeah, so, you know, one of the things as I started to, to put the book together um, and I was trying to figure out how am I going to explain, you know, what we did around innovation over all these years and, you know, as a little bit of background, when someone asked me to explain it, I never had thought about it the whole time we were running, building Cree and running it, right? It was something we did. It's not something we talked about. So as I started to think about innovation, I realized that the term gets used so often, it is clearly a buzzword and it means many different things to different people. So for me, I had to start out with, okay, what do I mean by that? And so to me, in, innovation is something new that also solves a problem and creates real value. And an invention is just something new. So, for example, the patent office, I believe, has over 10 million issued patents in it. All of them would be considered legally an invention. Yet very few of them actually have been used to solve a problem and create value. And then the reason that's important is what you do to create something new is not the same thing as what you then have to do to make it solve that problem and create value. And so that's the tough part. And that's why there was so much emphasis in the book about what I'm trying to do, because it doesn't mean invention isn't important. It's, it's oftentimes a part of the innovation process, but a lot of people stop there. And so much of what we did at Cree and what I did in my career was figuring out how do you make it matter to somebody? Because to me, those are what the great innovations are. They, if someone is not just did something new, but they made them matter. And so getting into the mindset of what it takes to do that is really, you know, really was the genesis of the, of what I was trying to do in the book and help, help other people hopefully be able to do it for themselves. No, I, uh, so I, I like that. Um, now you, you, you mentioned Cree, uh, you all mentioned that as part of your background, you mentioned it there. So what exactly was Cree and what did you all do? So when I joined Cree in 1993, it was a 30-person startup with about $6 million a year in revenue, and it had this idea it was going to make the world's first blue LED. And at the time, we had red and green LEDs, but there wasn't a blue one. And so this was this really cool idea. So I quit my good job at HP, moved to North Carolina, joined a startup, and we went on this journey. Now, I would be – I would it would not be – factual to say that I knew in 1993 we would someday invent LEDs that would be good enough to replace light bulbs. We thought we'd make a blue LED. We hope we'd make it a lot brighter than it was at the time, but we really couldn't see how the future was going to turn out exactly. We had an idea and we were working on it. And so Cree went down this path as a material science company, eventually developed a blue LED, which was then key to making white LEDs, which eventually led to what made LED light bulbs possible. And so I was on that journey. And so not only were we part of, you know, essentially 25 years of innovation, but also 25 years of scaling the business. So starting out as a startup and and by the time I retired from Korea a few years ago, you know, we had over 1.6 billion in revenue and 7,000 employees. And so both scaling an organization and all the different things that came with that and doing that through this pursuit 
of innovation to solve problems in the market. And, and typically what that meant was we were always the little company. So we were always facing someone with more resources, uh, with better brands, and you know, essentially had what should be all the advantages. And so we had to build or had to survive through a culture that was really about we spent almost all of our time focused on the real problems and solving them. And while most of the large organizations spent their time, you know, honestly talking with themselves. Well, and I like, so I like that very last piece there, the, the solving real problems. Like, uh, you know, a few episodes back on my podcast, I shared a story. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard uh, of a gentleman named Ernesto, uh, and I'm probably pronouncing his name terribly wrong, Ernesto Sorolo. I have not. So he, uh, so again, I tell the full story on, on uh, a podcast a few episodes back, but long story short, he's an Italian gentleman. He was working for an NGO. They went to Africa uh, to help a, a, a tribe build uh, farms. And he couldn't understand why, uh, why the tribesmen weren't helping them. And they, they just had this, it was beautiful, fertile farmland. And the whole time he was there, he couldn't figure out why they weren't growing their own crops. And so glad that the Italians come in to save these poor uh, Africans because they had this resource right there and they weren't using it. And they just could not build interest in growing the crops. Well, when it come time uh, to harvest one night, right before they got a chance to harvest everything, this herd of hippos came out of the river and ate everything. <laughs> and uh, the way he tells the story is he's distraught, and, and the Africans are asking, why are you so distraught? And he's like, well, we had all of this food for you, and the hippos came and ate it. And they're like, well, we knew that's what they were going to do. Well, why didn't you tell us? Well, nobody asked us. You just came in and started growing food, and you seemed so happy. We let you do it. We thought you just wanted to feed the hippos. And so his the moral of the story he shares there is they never stopped to ask the, the villagers what the problem was. The villagers knew that they could grow the crops there, but they also knew that the hippos would come eat everything. So they were solving a problem that they were solving the wrong problem, I guess is the point. So how can innovators get around that? Well, I think you've got, it's a great story to, you know, one of the biggest issues that I saw in innovation. And look, I'm an engineer by training. And what most people think about innovation is they get this great new idea. We've got this thing, and it's it's gonna it's gonna just do wonderful things we couldn't expect before. To engineers or most people, they get excited about the newness of it, right? What is this new feature that it adds? But the point is, is that to make an innovation, you have to solve a problem. And that means you have to actually understand what it is. Yet so many of us start by going, even if you ask the customer when it comes to innovation, so in your case, in the story in Africa, they didn't even talk to the customer. But the second issue is, is that when you talk to them, if you're going to do something that's never been done before, they can't tell you what it is they need you to do because you can't describe something that you don't know isn't possible, right? So if you right. don't know it's possible, you can't describe it. And so one of the things we had to learn was you wanted to talk to the customer, but you didn't ask them what they wanted you to do. You wanted to understand the problem they were facing. And if you could relate to it that way, and it's the same idea around these features and benefits, it's not, the LED light bulb was this really amazing device. When we first developed it, 
we knew we had something that used a fraction of the energy and lasted more than 10 times longer than a regular light bulb. And nobody cared because no one was trying to save energy with their light bulbs and they weren't all that worried about the fact that they burned out every so often. Mm. It wasn't until we figured out that what we actually were doing was saving them money. And people care a lot about saving money. Right. And it was when we realized that was the problem we needed to solve. We didn't even have to change the product. We just had to change how we positioned it in the market in their minds and what we focused on to get them interested. And so I think you know, there's really two pieces to this convert what we're talking about here, which is, one, you can't ask them, but you can listen. And if you ask the right questions, you can find problems. And then second is, you when you come up with your solution, you have to position it around their problem not your idea. And in often cases, companies get stuck on one or the other. And so, you know, one of the comments that we used to say is, you know, there's a lot of companies that did really badly by doing what their customers told them to do. Because their customer will almost always tell you to make what they have better. Mm. But innovation is typically not something they have right now. And so they're going to, by definition, almost tell you to never work on something that's the really big idea. It's because can't, they can't. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, I like that because you, you kind of point that out uh, also kind of early on is a lot of people consider Apple today as, as innovators, but they really haven't innovated a whole lot since the iPhone, right? Yeah. What I give them credit for the iPhone's probably the last big thing they did. And people say, what do you mean? And, and don't get me wrong. Apple is, I mean, they're a very successful company and they continue to come out with lots of new features. But if you look at their sales growth over the last couple of years, it's slowed. And I would argue that it's slowed not because they don't have more new products that are interesting and, and, you know, things you might, you know, with features that are, you know, potentially intriguing, but they don't solve any real problems. And so what's happened is that, they're not pushing those limits of innovation. It's not something you have to have anymore. It's kind of a nice to have. And so you want to make that distinction. And again, Apple's still very successful in terms of making profits, but I don't think they're innovative. And honestly, I would make the same argument. I think Google, for a different reason, is also struggling with that, which is you know, Google has one of the most well-funded, or Alphabet now, one of the most well-funded R&D centers in the world. They're working on all kinds of amazing technology. Mm -hmm. But yet, none of it ever really comes to market. Google is primarily a company that is in the business of selling ads for search. That's really what drives their business. And I would argue that if the teams at Google that were doing these R&D projects, if they believed that they were going to be fired if they weren't successful, these things like the driverless car or their attempt to make a competitor to Facebook, I believe those would have been successful projects under a different set of circumstances. Because if you take away this necessity of innovation that if you don't get there, we might all lose our jobs or go out of business, you take away one of the key things that drives focus and pushes people to achieve these really difficult things. And in fact, I would point to Google Ventures, which is a very successful venture capital enterprise. They fund other companies. And I think if you look at the stats, you'll see that there's far more innovations that have come from companies funded by Google Ventures, which are teams that if they don't figure it out, go out of business, than from Google itself. 
Well, I mean, that's a very interesting point because, uh, you know, and I've, I've shared a couple of NASA stories from my podcast before, but uh, Gene Kranz, you know, uh, has said a few times that he believes that one of the worst things that ever happened to NASA was also one of the best things, which was landing on the moon. And he said, as soon as we landed on the moon, we started getting funding cut and, and we started getting missions canceled and things like that. So it's kind of the same thing that I'm hearing here is, is in this case, we innovated with during the space race, we threw everything we needed to, to get to the moon. But once we won, we kind of take, to, took our foot off the pedal, so to speak. If we'd have kept going, if we'd kept the, the, the pedal down, what could we have uh, accomplished since landing on the moon? And so is that a thing that, that a lot of companies run into is they get successful and they quote have won and they get complacent. Uh, success is a horrible deterrent to innovation. So what happens is, is that if you just think about how we're wired as people, when you're in second place or third place and you're trying to get to first, it's really easy to be motivated. You know, you have to do something better to get there. But once you have success and you've done it, then what's gonna cause you to go that extra mile to push yourself to whether it be resources or time or focus to really make it happen? And the answer is it's very difficult. I mean, essentially, when you're a very innovative company, and we had this happen at Cree, for years we were chasing all these big companies, and then we were the leader. And one of the hardest things to do was to keep innovating because essentially what you have to be willing to do is say, I know I'm, maybe have the best widget today, or I maybe have this great product on first, but if I don't obsolete myself, someone else will. And it's very hard for people to do that, right? There, You've lost that incentive. I mean, if you just think about it, you know, we get very satisfied. We create metrics in our companies mm-hmm. and systems to reward, hey, I want you to achieve the next goal. Well, what happens if the what, how many people are going to be rewarded for, hey, I'm going to take this really good business that you're running today, and I'm going to make it worse. I'm actually going to take all the resources. Instead of making more money over the next two years, I'm going to invest in this other thing that might not work. And if it does, it's going to make the current business worse. And almost nobody will do that. I mean, it's, it's the story of Kodak all over again, right? Yeah. You, you have this phenomenal company that literally invents most of the core technology around digital photography and makes a conscious choice not to go after it. In fact, what most people don't realize is at one point, Kodak didn't just invent it. They had such a capability in digital photography. For a period of time, they were making digital cameras for Apple Mm -hmm. because they did not want anyone to think they were in the digital photography business. And, you know, years later, eventually the technology runs them out of business or at least force them into bankruptcy. And now they're a shell of what they used to. And, and But it's completely understandable. It's where, you know, Clay Christensen, who recently passed away, wrote probably the, the definitive book around this idea, which is the innovator's dilemma. And, and his premise is, is why do really well-managed companies invariably not be able to change? And it's because what we do to manage the things that make you a very good manager fundamentally get in the way of the behaviors that you need for innovation. I like that. I like that. And, and it, it reminds me of, uh, I'm trying to remember the author 
Um, Simon Sinek has a book out now called The Infinite Game, but he wasn't the first one to write about it. And I'm having a blank on the author's name. Uh, but but have you ever have you ever heard the concepts finite and infinite games? I've heard the terms, but I have not read the book that you're describing. So long story short is one, and it's it's essentially what you just described, but. Most companies fail because they're playing the wrong game. If you're playing a finite game, you have a very clear set of rules. You have very clear metrics for what it means to win. And the purpose is to play within those rules and have a winner. Is why you see a lot of commercials today where, you know, I'm the number one rated SUV in my class that begins with a J, right? Because that gives them a metric to achieve, (laughs) (laughs) right? Whereas successful companies uh, or successful organizations that innovate uh, continually, they play the infinite game and their goal, their sole purpose is to keep the game going. There, There is no winning. It's always what can we do to keep the game going? And I, I, I kind of heard that in what you were saying because, you know, again, winning, game's over, everybody goes home, right? And that was kind of the story that happened with NASA. Uh, you know, go ahead. along those lines, you, if you think about that, so one of my favorite sayings that, I, that we used at Korea and that I had hanging on my wall was, is that no matter what you do today, you can always do it better tomorrow. And if uh, you start with that assumption that there's always a better way. It is a really powerful way to get out of your own way. Because oftentimes it it was ourselves, right? You know, if you and I are working together on something and let's say uh, you come up with a great idea and we implement it and it works. Mm-hmm. Well, if a few months later I come up with a different idea that might be better, but it might not, as much as you might want to embrace it, you got a lot of credit, right? You, a lot of people said, hey, that was a great idea you came up with. We're so happy. You're, you're naturally going to be wed to that idea. You're not going to want to give it up. And so you create these artificial you know, boundary conditions in our psyche that you have to get past. So if you know for a fact that no matter what, there's going to be something better tomorrow, and if that is your core assumption, it's actually quite easy to keep going. Um, it's also along the lines of this other concept, which is what you were describing earlier is this, I call it the thinking about this idea of the box, right? And mm-hmm. you know, so many people talk about innovation and they say, hey, let's start with thinking outside the box. And I actually used to use that exact same term. And what it dawned on me is, as I was putting together the book and thinking about how to explain this to others is I said those words, but that's not actually what we meant because we actually started with the assumption that there was no box at all. And as I was putting this concept together, someone said, yeah, because the moment you accept that there's a box, even if it's something you're trying to get away from, you're accepting boundary conditions. And the moment you accept the boundary conditions, it will limit what's possible. So you have to assume that there aren't any. And as that sounds really nice, it's really hard because our lives are filled with these boundary conditions that we've taken from all kinds of other experiences. But hmm. if you're going to really pursue these ideas, you can't let that past thinking get there. It's one of the reasons why, you know, people always, you know, like to talk about, hey, let's talk about, you know, how do you apply Six Sigma to innovation? You would never apply Six Sigma to innovation. 
Six Sigma is an incredibly useful and powerful tool. What it does is it takes a distribution and it eliminates the variability. So you can do the same thing almost perfectly every time. But innovation, by definition, isn't in the distribution. It's somewhere else. You cannot use Six Sigma to refine something to get an innovation. It will get you improvements all day long. But by definition, it's never going to give you something outside the Six Sigma. And yet that's exactly what innovation is. And so I think what happens is there's great tools for all kinds of different purposes, but we tend to like want to use them all for the same thing. And it doesn't work that way. You have to apply the right mindset and the right tools for the problem you're trying to solve. Well, and, and that ties back into knowing what the problem you're trying to solve is. And, uh, you know, and I like I, I like that about the, the Six Sigma because, you know, you're, you're right. I mean, how many how many innovations uh, I would say most innovations are probably intentional, but how many innovations have happened by mistake that you could miss out on? Right. Oh, there's a tremendous number. And and by mistake or. And I think mistake sometimes implies that it's a bad thing. Mm. What I would say is, is that innovations happen because people are willing to try something. And so often we spend, you know, we've all been taught to try to be perfect, to get the right answer, that there is a right answer. I mean, let's just take the most basic example. I happen to be a new grandfather. I have an almost two-year-old grandson. And you give a young child a coloring book and crayons for the first time. And what do they do? They take the crayons and they scribble all over everywhere. (laughs) And what do we do as adults? No, no, no. Let me show you how to color inside the lines. Like the lines are there, like that boundary. We're giving people these boundaries that there is this right answer. Or how many people go to school and are taught how to try things and it's okay if it doesn't work out, right? The entire education system is built on getting the right answer when innovation is actually the process of discovery. And it doesn't mean you're trying to fail, but you will fail. And what you have to recognize is every failure is also new knowledge, new information, that if you apply it to the next thing you do, you get smarter, way faster. That's what discovery looks like. But so, you know, too many people were teaching them today that there's only a right answer. And so they really struggle with this concept. And, you know, it's one of the premises of the book, which is how... To behave like an innovator, you have to actually get at what your core beliefs are. Mm. And your beliefs are a function of your life experiences. And the reality is, is how most of us grow up, those experiences and, the, and has taught us to believe things that are kind of anti-innovation. So I would bet that most of your listeners are generally been wired over their lives through experiences to be afraid of failure or to think that risk is a bad thing instead of something they should actually pursue. Or they've been taught this idea that we should strive for best practice. Mm. When by definition, a best practice means you're no better than what someone else has already done. We should be striving for something better or something that's probably really applicable to these current times. Most of us have been taught that a crisis is a problem and something to be avoided. And while it certainly does cause problems, A crisis is one of these incredible opportunities to get people to change in ways you could never get them to change in any other way. And so you have to experience these things 
to form beliefs that allow you to do this on a regular basis. And so really what I was trying to tease out in the book, and that's why it's called the innovator spirit, is that it really gets into how do you think about these things? Are you willing to put yourself in situations to try kind of rewire some of that default thinking that you've likely been, you know, you've likely developed over your life? Well, yeah. And so uh, I like that because, I mean, you're talking about uh, current times. You know, we're, we're here in uh, mid-April and a lot of people are uh, still locked in uh, with the, the COVID-19 coronavirus uh, crisis. But uh, I don't know if you've seen this story. Uh, did you see about uh, the, the Boy Scout who invented the, uh, what do you call it? We call them ear savers for, for nurses. I did not. So all these pictures started uh, flowing around of, you know, uh, medical professions, doctors, nurses, EMTs with these getting these sores on their face and ears from wearing the mask all the time. And so this this Boy Scout, I want to say he was in Canada. He started seeing these pictures and he was, you know, he started where I would say all good innovation starts with, with his, you know, why. And he looked into what causes those sores and it was the pressure because, you know, a lot of times the elastic band, you know, just pulls the mask too tight. And so he saw a problem that needed to be solved. And so he gets on a, his 3D printer and he makes this, I mean, it is kind of like the truest definition of a widget. It's, it's a 3D printed plastic strip with these different hooks on it so that they can wear behind their head and adjust the mask so it's not putting so much pressure on their face. And he's just 3D printing these for, for first responders and he's shared, he's not making any money off of it, he shared the file. So all these people with 3D printers now are printing these things off to donate to their hospitals. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, so, so one of the things that's, you know, kind of by happenstance, I, I, this book, I finished the book almost a year ago now. And so it's a relatively long process to, you know, get it final edited and get it ready to go into publication. And so, you know, I couldn't have imagined that we'd be facing the coronavirus pandemic at this point in time, but I've, you know, I sat on the board at Marquette as a board of the trustees for 12 years, and now I, I serve in a different role as innovator in residence, but one of the things we talked about for probably close to a decade was how do we get more online education as part of traditional higher ed? And, it, and sure, it's been growing, but up until, you know, you know, a few months ago, it was still a relatively small percentage of what most college students experience was. And frankly, it doesn't just apply to college, it applies across the board. But if you and I were sitting in a room in February, and we sat down with just about any university and the leadership and the faculty and said, look, we need to really get serious about going online, virtual classroom. Let's go as fast as possible. What could we do? I would bet you you get an answer, something along the lines of if we put everyone on this and we're willing to sacrifice our current programs and the quality of that, we might be able to do it in three to five years. Mm-hmm. During spring break, the students go to spring break. They decide they're not going to reopen universities and go virtual, and they did it in seven days. Right. It, it, it's not – I mean, there are universities that went from 50 online classes to 2,000 online classes in seven days. Now, that would have literally been described as not humanly possible before that moment. And – and so the point of this is that 
I think in a crisis, and you know, you talked about NASA, Apollo 13, it was just the anniversary on April 11th. Mm-hmm. And so I tend to watch it every year because it's one of my favorite movies. And you think about what they did on that, on that mission where, you know, NASA is one of the most incredibly planned out organizations, right? Right. But the, they get up into space, they lose the oxygen tank, and they're, they're not sure they're going to get back alive. And yet over three days, they do things that no one ever thought was possible because they had no other choice, right? And so, right. you know, part of what, you know, part of the challenge of innovation isn't the idea. It's getting people motivated enough to change, and I think what these moments teach us is there's certainly a lot of people suffering during this pandemic. And I, and I am very try to be very respectful of all the problems it actually is causing. But we can't change some of that. So but what we can do is go. But it's also there are new opportunities being created, whether it be what you describe with the Boy Scout, what's happening in higher ed or just about every industry where this is this moment. If you have this idea and you people weren't willing to change before. I test it now because they're way more open to just about everything. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree a hundred percent. It's, it's, uh, you're right. And it goes and you talk about this later in the book. Uh, but you know, it was Sun Tzu and, and many of the, uh, the, the old military leaders throughout history kind of grasp that concept of, you know, if you make, and even Apollo 13, if you make failure, not an option, success becomes a lot more likely. Uh, and and I, I like the fact that you threw that out there because, uh, you know, yeah, I mean, you, you tying back to your Six Sigma stuff, if you kind of look at the Apollo 13 process, it's, uh, that's kind of what created some of the problems, right? There's that infamous scene where they're, they're trying to fix the CO2 scrubbers and one's round and one's square. And, and Gene uh, uh, Kranz, you know, has the famous line, tell me this is a government operation. It's, but they had to innovate around a problem that was created by trying to reduce problems. So how often does that happen? How often does how often does a process that's intended to make things easier create a problem where innovation thrives? Oh, I think that most innovations are are the result of essentially a process that has an unintended consequence, right? Um, and look, we. I want to be clear to run a large organization. Cree was very innovative, but when we became a billion plus dollar company, uh, even me, the guy who loves innovation and is kind of the don't love a lot of process or structure, you can't run a large public company without it. Right. So you need those things to make those organizations work. But what you have to recognize is the things that make that work get in the way of, these other behaviors. So you have to find a way to create an environment or a culture that is allowed to exist either in a startup. It's easy because there is no framework, right? There's essentially no boundaries, no process. There's not a lot of anything. So you just, you're figuring it out as you go. It's quite easy. But in a large organization that's starting to have success, you have to create moments where how do I let these people operate outside those boundary conditions? And, you know, I talk about it in the book when we developed the Creality light bulb, we were over a billion dollar company. And probably the most important decision we made was, is that it was pretty apparent that if we tried to invent that product within the organization that we had developed to run the large company, it wouldn't have worked. And so we created a secret team that literally went off to a warehouse, didn't tell anyone what they're doing and spent a year in secret developing this product and launching it. 
So the day the Creality light bulb was released to the market with a national TV campaign, there were probably 30 or 40 employees in the whole company that even knew we were working on it um, because we had to give them a fundamentally different environment, both to keep the system from slowing them down, but also they needed to live in a world where they were operating without that backup plan mentality, right? You know, I get why people want contingencies and backup plans, but when it comes to innovation, they have negative value. Well, yeah, no, I, uh, I mean, and that makes, that makes total, uh, total sense. And it makes me wonder, uh, you know, is that where the role of leadership in the innovation process really comes in? Cause you know, we've already kind of talked about Apple a little bit and, you know, a lot of people would, would kind of point to, uh, you know, kind of point to the death of Steve Jobs as kind of a downturn uh, for the company and in innovation because he was famous for challenging people to, to fail uh, and, and, and find ways to make things happen during the failure process. Whereas it seemed like when uh, Tim Cook took over, he was more about success, success, success. So how big of a role does leadership really play in driving innovation in the future of an organization? It's the single most important aspect. Um, in fact, I make the distinction in the book that most of what we do each day, all of us in our personal lives at work or wherever, is what I call management. I make the distinction that management is, you know, following rules or processes to get predictable outcomes. It's necessary and really important. But leadership is getting people to do something that might not be possible and convincing them to do it, keep going, even when they have some failure along the way. And so what I would say is, is and using Apple as the example is, is you know, Steve Jobs was in well regard, was known as not a very good manager. In fact, there was lots of things about how he did things that bothered people. Mm-hmm. But there's no doubt he had a sense for the market and the future and the ability to get enough people to buy into his idea and to take on problems that they might not otherwise do. In fact, I had a chance to interview one of his employees um, who helped develop both iPhoto and iMovie. And when he talks about how these were done, they literally were almost like Skunk Works projects, even within Apple, because there was a big team working on it, but it was the small teams that Steve said, I don't care what those guys are doing. I want you to prove they're wrong and go show them it could be done, where they went and made it happen. So leadership is critical, and, and I think, and it's at all levels, right? So, so often I get to meet people who say, hey, we want to do this really innovative thing. And they're, let's say they're in the, the middle or the lower level of an organization. If, if the leadership of that organization doesn't see the need to drive change, in other words, if it's not critical to them to get to a different place, you're almost never going to get there because what will happen is these great ideas will come up and they will run into this, hey, but we can't take that risk or, yeah, but I can't afford to to take these resources from this other project because I signed up to do that as well. But when those leaders go, wow, if we don't figure this out, we're all in trouble. That's when you get the right environment. I I had a chance to interview an, uh, an insurance company, American Family Insurance. And I Honestly, I went to see them thinking there's no chance I'm going to see innovation and insurance in the same company. This is a 93-year-old company. And yet, 
they found a way to do it. Now, the whole company's not innovative. They have a big part of it that's really good at being in the insurance business. But they knew that their market was changing. And, you know, probably about a decade ago, the CEO, you know, came to the conclusion that if we don't innovate, we're going to become an irrelevant company at some point. And so he created an environment to start these other activities around innovation that essentially run almost in parallel. They're not, it's not, it's not meant to exclude one from the other. It's meant to find people that are wired and focused on doing innovation in one place and ones that are really good at running the day-to-day operation of processing claims in an insurance company. You don't need a ton of innovation to process a claim. In fact, if you and I had a claim, we probably don't want to talk to that person. We just want to get our money, right? Right. But, but yet at the same time, if you're running that insurance company and you know that, hey, what are we going to do when car insurance is really not that important because all the cars are self-driving? Right. Wow. Well, that's a really different business model. And so you have to learn to live with both of these people. And so that's where I always encourage people that the first step of deciding if innovation is the right approach to your problem is, is it do you believe at all levels that it's the only alternative? Because if you think there's multiple ways to get there, one's to be innovative, one's to make some improvements, I'll bet you that 99% of the time, the improvement's going to win out every time because the innovation is going to get painful and hard and someone's going to go, why are we doing that? Because this is good enough. Well, I like that. And, and you know, I mean, because people, I, mean, I like what you said there, people don't like pain uh, and, and hard work is, if we can do what we always did and it's easier, the hard work is always easy to avoid. We've kind of skirted around it a little bit here uh, in the conversation, but uh, the, is that kind of the key to the, the innovator's spirit is being able to see that and, and willing to take those risks? Yeah, look, the innovator's spirit, is really about it, it, taking risk is one of them, being unafraid of failure, embracing ideas like the brutal truth, which means that you culturally in the organization, you've got to be prepared to say exactly what's going on and get rid of all the cultural niceties that tend to get in our way. Because I got to tell you, innovation is hard. If you're not working on the facts, you got almost no chance to get there. And so there's, you have to learn that perfection is not the goal, right? You have to be willing to take ideas that are partially figured out and test them in the market. Um, There's a lot of things that you have to essentially undo what I will call the conventional thinking that we've been given and apply a different approach. And if you do that, and, and this is really about not the behavior, but thinking about why do you believe the one thing? So why is it that you avoid risk? So how would you convince yourself that it's okay? Or why is it that you're afraid of failure? And what I always tell people is take a chance on something that you know you're going to fail at. So for me, a really low-tech example is um, a few years ago, my daughter was getting married and asked me if I take a ballroom dancing lesson with her. I got to tell you, (laughs) I am not much of a dancer, and that is the last thing I wanted to do. But it's my daughter's wedding, and my wife kind of looks at me like, you can't say no to this. So I go. And after I get done with it, I realize, you know what? Yeah, I was afraid of embarrassing myself. But once I did it, it really wasn't all that bad. Right. And and what you start to do, get past is this idea is once you realize that the fear of something is worse than actually doing it, 
then it's not so hard to do different things. But yet that's learned, right? That's not that's not like inherent in some people and not in others. That's a function of your life experiences. So if you want to get comfortable with risk and failure, you've got to put yourself in situations and survive it and realize, hey, I'm still okay. I can try something again. I, guess what? I signed up for this really tough goal at work. And even though I didn't get there, I didn't get fired. In fact, I got rewarded for pushing farther than anyone else. You got you to put yourself in those situations and see for yourself what it looks like. And then you can start doing it over and over again. And for me, when I started at Cree, I thought I was a risk taker. I wasn't. I learned these traits over my career there. Well, no. And again, uh, it's, I'm loving everything you're saying here because, you know, uh, the the fear thing, you know, that was one of the reasons why we did the things we did in Marine Corps boot camp was to get us used to being in those situations. Uh, so we knew how to function and, and, you know, again, dancing, uh, you know, that would probably be one up there for me, uh, starting this podcast, you know, that was one that like, do people really want to hear what I have to say to, do, do people care? Uh, you know, so there's a lot of those little things out there that people can start with kind of, uh, if you will, inoculating yourself against the fear of failure. And, uh, you know, we've talked about it before, but, uh, the power of failure and, one of my favorite quotes is you know, from Mark Cuban, and he he always says, I'm not where I'm at because I succeeded more than you. I'm where I'm at because I failed more than you. And and I think, you know, people just miss out on on the empowering feeling of failing and learning from it and making adjustments as they move on. It's it's very, very I don't know. I mean, you kind of said it there with the dancing, but it's very invigorating when you just fall flat on your face and you get up and you realize what you did wrong and you fix it and you make it past that step. Yeah. And look, and you also realize that, so you fell on your face. Okay. Like you're still, you're still here. It's okay. And we're still moving. Um, you know, I think there's this, uh, there's just so much about letting yourself experience it. It, 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 it is truly gets as simple as if you survive it and get to the other side, it starts to become, it, it, you just have a different experience. As, as I got a chance to, you know, talk to lots of other innovators, one of the questions I like to ask them always is what's their biggest failure? And what I noticed is, is that they almost always give me kind of a two part answer. It's where do I start? So the list is so long. It's like, which, which one do you want to talk about? I can go on forever. But then they also end up in a place that's quite interesting. They usually end up really describing it as, yeah, I failed. But to me, I, I didn't really think of it as a failure. I thought of it as something I learned. Mm -hmm. And, you know, failure leads to learning and learning leads to innovation. And so you've got to be prepared to, and, and, don't get me wrong. I am not a guy who goes out there saying, I don't go out to try to fail, right? This idea that the goal is not to fail. You're trying to succeed, but you can't be afraid to do something that might fail, right? right. There's a difference there. And in getting that, getting that balance, right? You know, I, I met someone one time and said, well, aren't you happy? I keep failing. I said, well, no, the goal is actually not to just keep failing. The goal is to not be afraid and to learn something. What I want to know is, are you getting smarter because of it? Are you getting new insights and knowledge that let us go places we haven't been before? That's the benefit of the failure, not simply the goal to just, yeah, I, I just keep failing. No, that's not the goal. 
Yeah, that was, uh, you know, I, I didn't realize until years later how uh, smart my senior drill instructor was, but uh, uh, my senior drill instructor, Sergeant Buck, all through boot camp, he would always tell us, he goes, the only bad mistake you make is one you make twice. <laughs> and, and I, you know, I was always just kind of, well, A, you know, it's boot camp, so we were just kind of scared of everything he said. But it wasn't until years later that, that yeah, I, I realized the wisdom of what he was saying. The only bad mistake is one you make twice. Because if you don't learn from it and you do the same thing again, then you're not growing. You're just making the same mistakes over and over. You know, I, I, I've never served in the military, but I've, as growing up, I've always been fascinated by it. So having read a bunch, it just been really, really interested in the, in the mindset of what it takes. But I would tell you that a few, even a few years ago, I would have thought of the military and the training as something more about getting you to follow orders to do certain things. And while there is some of that, what I've discovered in getting to know different people over the last few years is that, and it's funny you mentioned it because the person that really turned me out of this was also in the Marines. And he goes, what we're really doing is we're trying to get someone to a point that they're going to end up in a situation we cannot predict. Mm -hmm. So we're just trying to get them ready to be able to adapt in that moment. And what's interesting is that's, it's way more applicable to the mindset of innovation that I would have ever thought because I was confusing, you know, the structure of the military with some of the mindset that you're trying to put into each individual person. And so, you know, as you describe what happens and I've, I've read about what they do when they, you know, take people, whether it's through boot camp or whether what they teach people in SEAL school or these other places, it's, it's truly about getting your belief system to be in a different place so that you're able to behave in ways that would otherwise, frankly, you know, paralyze most regular people. Yeah, no, I mean, and that's exactly it. And I, I run into that quite a bit, you know, with people who haven't been, they have the same mindset. And uh, I was just talking about this with a couple of guests ago, the, the final phase, if you will, of Marine Corps boot camp is this event called the Crucible. And it's uh, three days. You march something like 70 some miles over the three days. You get like two and a half hours of sleep. Uh, you get one and a half uh, the MREs, the meals ready to eat over that time frame. So you're tired, you're hungry, you've been marched all over the place. And then they bring you up to these problem solving platforms. And they're, they're virtually impossible to solve. Uh, like they all only have like one solution. Everything has to be done very specifically. And it, it's not about what, what you don't know at the time is it's not about whether or not you solve the puzzle. They're evaluating you on how you approach it and how you treat your team, right? So it doesn't matter whether you solve the puzzle or not. It's do you keep your temper in check? Do you listen to the people around you? Do you try the suggestions of the folks around you? And do you keep your composure? And, you know, again, as you're going through it, you don't know that. You're like, oh, they're just throwing this at us to mess with us. But once you get out and get experience in the real world, outside of a boot camp environment, it's just such valuable training because that's usually when the wheels come off as people are tired, they're hungry, uh, they just want to sleep, you know, things like that. But to be able to keep your composure and still try to problem solve is, is a great skill to have. Well, because under stress, your behaviors are going to reflect what your core beliefs are. 
Mm-hmm. And so we can practice all we want and you can practice something so it becomes a habit, but it's not until your belief system is actually changed that that's what comes out in these moments. And so, you know, you know, for me, one of the challenges was, is when we were trying to identify people to come work in this environment that was very innovation centric, you know, I had to try to figure out if someone was, you know, was predisposed to be successful there. And, you know, so one it's where the idea in the book and you see it early on where I asked the question of, you know, I'd ask almost every interview candidate, you know, how many barbers are there in the city of New York? And they'd be sitting in this interview going, what is that question? You got to be kidding me. And I said, yeah, well, tell me how you'd figure it out. Like, let's do it right now. And I didn't care what the answer was. What I wanted to know is in that moment, could they live with the uncertainty and come up with something, right? Could they think under pressure? Because that's what was going to happen every day. I when they were joining our company, the only thing I knew for sure is I didn't know what was going to happen tomorrow. But I knew I needed people that were comfortable that something was going to be different and they could they keep adapting. And so that's what I was looking for. And I think it's the same thing that they were, you know, essentially what they were training you for is your mission had a similar set of circumstances and they had to see would you react the right way. And the ones that survived it told them, hey, yeah, they do. Right. No, nope, exactly. Exactly. Well, Chuck, this has been a great conversation. Um, I can't believe we're already uh, over the 50-minute mark here, and I think we could probably talk for another two or three hours. <laughs> but uh, uh, no, I, I really, I really like what you what you have to say. I really like what you're uh, what you're doing with around innovation, and uh, you know, I, I strongly encourage everyone. Uh, like I said, by the time this airs, the book will be out. Uh, the Innovator's Spirit. Discover the mindset to pursue the impossible. Um, it, it's a great read. I highly encourage you to pick up a copy. Um, before we work to really close this out, is there anything that you would like to touch on that we haven't had a chance to? You know, I think the only thing I like to add for people is that, um, you know, innovation can be a daunting challenge. And I think a lot of times it, in some organizations it has a negative connotation because it just feels like it's a word we're throwing around. But I would encourage you to, to look past that. It is an, what I've learned by experiencing it, it is, it is an incredibly powerful tool or an approach that really lets you take on just about any challenge. And cause it's not about getting an exact answer. It's about believing you'll find an answer and and knowing that it's okay if you end up in a slightly different place than where you set out. It's the willingness to keep going. And it's it's just, especially in these times, it's a really encouraging mindset that when I wrote the book, I wrote it about helping people innovate. But what I found is the mindset applies uh, in moments like this more than I ever thought. And so I I just hope people take a few moments to, to, to take a moment for themselves and think about that because it certainly makes getting up each day at uncertain times a little bit easier. I like it. I like it. And if any of my listeners, uh, they want to reach out, find out more about what you're doing, uh, where you're going to be speaking, things like that, is there a good place for them to uh, look or a good way to contact you? Yes. So the best place is my website, chuckswoboda.com. But they can also follow me on social media. Uh, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at the Chuck Swoboda. I'm also pretty active on LinkedIn. And I, in addition, I have my podcast and I'm writing a weekly uh, column for or article for Forbes that they might be interested in. So look, p- feel free to reach out. One of the things I would point out is innovation, there's not an end point. It's a journey and it doesn't end. So 
I am sure that some of my ideas, someone's got a better one. I love to hear them. I'm learning every day. And so the point of this is to keep learning. So if you heard something I said you don't like or disagree with or want to debate it, reach out to me in any one of those ways. I'd love to have that conversation with you. Uh, nope, I like that. And and uh, so, uh, again, the name of his podcast is Innovators on Tap. Uh, I will make sure that I get links to the website, uh, social media, and to your podcast in the show notes for this podcast. So make it nice and easy for the listeners to, to reach out to you. Uh, Chuck, again, thank you for your time. I really appreciate you being with us today. Well, it's been a great pleasure. And thank you so much for having me. Uh, my pleasure as well. And, and uh, listeners, thank you for spending uh, pretty close to the last hour or so with Chuck and I. Uh, if you have any comments, questions, or concerns for me, you know to reach out to burden.command at gmail.com. I uh, really appreciate you subscribing, rating, and reviewing the show and helping us uh, grow in, on the various platforms. I uh, greatly appreciate that. And uh, with that, I look forward to speaking with you again in the next episode. Have you ever wondered what actually happens in Congress every day? Stay informed on Capitol Hill's daily happenings with a concise, factual summary of the Senate and House of Representatives activities from the previous session, free from bias, on the Congressional Record Daily Digest podcast. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and discover the process from the heart of U.S. politics. The Congressional Record Daily Digest, an Electric Cast production. Hey there, I'm DC. I host the Rock Podcast, Back to the Arena, The Interviews. It's about a 30-minute podcast where I talk one-on-one with a band who has released new music. You can find us on all the best podcast sites like Spotify, Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, and more. If you're a rock band like me, subscribe today to Back to the Arena, The Interviews. Electric Acid.